Welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Murder, murder. so excited, Laura. So we've been deep diving on a piece of Boston history not a lot of people know about. Or let me say that a lot of people outside of Boston aren't familiar with the Combat Zone, which was dubbed Boston's sexual Disneyland. Boston has always had a stuffy, puritanical reputation. Throw a little Catholic guilt in there and some chowder and well, that's Boston. Surprisingly, in the 60s and 70s, a truly wild area existed in Boston called the Combat Zone. It was a red light district with strip clubs, gay clubs, peep shows, pimps, prostitutes, and drugs. It also had adult bookstores. Satan's Playground, as it was fondly called, was a four-block area inside the heart of conservative old Boston. What happened in the combat zone stayed in the combat zone. That was the hopeful drumbeat from the Boston City zoning gurus. But did it? Mm, we'll see. And there were tacit ways in which the zone was allowed to flourish. Mob influence, a laissez-faire police force, and an almost institutionalized look-the-other-way policy. So it might seem far-flung to our listeners, that were focusing on the combat zone, but there were actually three murders connected to the zone that had Ivy League ties. Murder was not an uncommon occurrence in the zone. Rival drug dealers offed each other, pimps occasionally killed prostitutes, and there was the random violence that pervaded the zone. But none of these murders got the same ink as when town and gown would clash. Pervasive crime and drugs were starting to erode goodwill about the combat zone. One of the crimes people were growing tired of were groups of prostitutes who would feel up an unsuspecting John and steal his wallet. These pickpocket gangs came to be called robber whores. One of the more tragic tipping points in the combat zone was the murder of Andrew Popolo. Andy, as he was known, was a Harvard football player on his way to med school. Just a 
month and a day ago, a good time turned into tragedy in a matter of minutes. Andrew Popolo, one of several Harvard football players, was stabbed in a scuffle over a missing wallet taken by prostitutes. The stabbing took place in this alley, about 30 feet down. The knife pierced Popolo's heart. He was rushed to nearby Tufts Medical Center. He was pronounced dead on arrival, but prompt medical attention brought him back to life. However, complications set in, and he lapsed into a coma, a coma from which he never emerged. On November 15, 1976, after a football event at the Harvard Club, Andy and his teammates headed into the combat zone for a bit of fun. This was a yearly tradition for the Harvard football team. First, they headed to the Naked Eye, which was a famous strip club. After, the group headed into the combat zone and a melee broke out when two prostitutes stole the wallet of one of the Harvard football players. The football players gave chase and three black men from the zone stepped in. One of them had a knife and stabbed Andy twice, and the second stab was fatal. In her book, The Combat Zone, Jan Brogan writes about the ensuing case and the racial and cultural tensions in Boston at the time. Jan Brogan has been a journalist in the Boston area for 30 years. She has written for the Worcester Telegram and the Boston Globe. She has also authored four works of fiction, one of which is being developed into a TV series. Welcome, Jan. Hello. Thank you for having me on. Oh, what a pleasure. Total pleasure. Honor. We absolutely loved your book. Oh, thank you. It really is. It's such a fair portrayal of what was happening in Boston at the time. And you really bring up these issues that are happening in Boston at the time, like segregation and busing issues and racial tensions and excellent, excellent book. Totally recommend it to our listeners. And I think that so many Bostonians, I even forget, and I remember the combat zone somewhat, we forget about this part of Boston history. It was the Wild West in Boston and was so surprising to the rest of the nation that puritanical Boston would have a zoned red light district that when this murder happened, uh, 300 newspapers across the country and, and even the Stars and Stripes in Japan covered it because it was like saying, look what you've done, Boston. But it was wild. And you do talk, and I th found the book fascinating because you talk so much about what was going on in Boston at the time because there was this really was a time of a lot of racial tension because of what was going on with busing. And maybe you could talk a little bit about what was going on in Boston at the time. Yeah, this was the second year of busing. And it was like only six months. I don't know if you remember the, uh, it's a famous photo that went around the world. And it was of a young white kid trying to stab a black man in a business suit with the American flag. That's what it looked like. And it's at this Boston City Hall. And it went around the country and it became quite, I think it won a Pulitzer because it really, really illustrated what was going on in Boston at the time, how intense the protests were, how violent the city was. I say racial tension. When I look at this, the data on, on the violence between whites and blacks, it's almost like it was a racial war. When the first year that they actually nailed down the numbers, there were more than 600 reported incidents of violence between whites and blacks. And that's just that was reported. That's wow. like in a year. It's hard now because Boston is so affluent to remember how poor the city was, how it was on its last legs. People didn't think it was going to come back. One of the reasons that the combat zone could flourish is because you couldn't give downtown property away. 
now it's, that area is all luxury condominiums yeah. that you can't afford. Then you could, nobody wanted to come to the city except, you know, these industries. They had a red light district up at Scully Square, which was where the city hall was. And they tried to get rid of it by urban renewal, by, you know, bulldozing it. But it didn't work because the market forces for it were so strong, it just moved down the street. Can you explain to our listeners, give us a little context about the busing issue. What was the busing issue? So in Boston for for many years, there was a lot of discrimination against schools in the Black neighborhoods. Boston is really racially divided. Part of it has to do with the geography. Charlestown is pretty much isolated. Southie is a peninsula. The North End was isolated by the highway. And so it's a time of urban poverty where a lot of the kids in those neighborhoods are poor immigrants. Boston had the highest rate of white poverty in the nation, urban white poverty in the nation at that time. Wow. And it's the baby boom, right? So there's a lot of 16 and 18 year old boys and they're like crossing the bridge. The Italians and the Irish would cross the bridge just just to get into a fight. There are just fights everywhere. After every basketball game, and it's between Italians and whites, but, but forget it if you're black. You know, if you come into the North End, God knows what will happen to you, or, or worse, Southie. So it's very, very racially violent. And so the schools are all separated. And at that time, the school committee was elected. So politicians used it as a springboard to hire office. So the politicians at the time were grandstanding. No, we're not going to integrate the schools. We're not going to even... One of the proposals was to start a few schools, a few schools that would be racially integrated, you know, like the magnet schools, like an arts thing or something. They wouldn't do that. And they were given a lot of opportunity to make the changes themselves. And so when it came to Judge Garrity, this has been after a decade of the school committee fighting it. And they wouldn't hire black teachers. The black schools got much less of the resources. So the feds came in and mandated federally imposed busing which was a reaction to these years of political belligerence, but it was almost punitive. I mean, it took poor kids from Mattapan in underperforming schools in Boston to equally underperforming schools in Charlestown. It's almost like they started in in Charlestown and and Southie, the, the most hostile white neighborhoods, and it exploded. It exploded. There were parents were it's just try to imagine this. Parents on the street throwing rocks at buses full of black children coming to their neighborhood, coming mm-hmm. to their schools. And, you know, the violence went both ways. A black student stabbed a white kid in Southie. And there were violence in the street in Mattapan. So there was violence on both sides. But statistically, as the years go on, it's, it's a higher rate of white against blacks. Gotcha. And Laura and I were talking about this before we came on today. And... It's interesting, though, that in a funny way, the combat zone was relatively integrated. Right, right, right. It's not a neighborhood. It's a commercial district. And it's the place where blacks and whites all go. They sit at the bar together. I mean, it's not like Kumbaya. Somebody told me that the black prostitutes tended to resort to the pickpocketing because they couldn't get pimps. There was a racial hierarchy Mm -hmm. in that as well. So it wasn't perfect, but it was better than the rest of Boston. But if you were an interracial couple, you would probably live in the zone or you would live in Cambridge or that type of thing. It's you could. You could yeah. you could live in an apartment there. If you if you were an interracial couple in the north end, you would come back and find your apartment ransacked. Right. Right. Yes. That was that case even when we were in high school. Yeah. I mean, you didn't go into the north end with your black friends and your Southie. I mean, we were from Cambridge. We just stayed in Cambridge. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. So can you tell us about Andy 
Popolo and maybe his background a bit. We know that he was a Harvard football player and on his way to med school, but he's not the privileged Harvard guy that he was actually a working class kid originally from the North End and then moved to Jamaica Plain. Yeah, so he was a North End kid, Italian, son of an Italian immigrant. Even though they move out of Jamaica Plain, all the family business is in the North End and they all work there. So they maintain their close ties to the North End throughout. And he was very proud about being Italian. And also because he was Italian and sick of being called a Guinea, he had a lot of, and this, and a lot of people told me this, he had a lot of sympathy for the underdog and was the first person on any team to make friends with the black players. And I had, I have talked, you know, I interview a lot of people. And one of the sad things about this case is his name, because it was the trial of his murder, gets associated with racism. And he was like the least racist kid at, yeah, on, yeah. on the team. Yeah. And I talked to a lot of people who told me that, a lot of his friends and a lot of his black friends. So he, he was all around from every report. He was just a great guy, a hardworking kid, really loyal to his family, loyal to his friends and loyal to his teammates. And that's what got him killed in this instance. That brings me to the next question. Can you describe the events of December 17th? This is 1976. That led to the stabbing death of Andy Pelton. He he dies on December 17th. Correct. The fight is in November. So the Harvard football team plays Yale, the game, on Sunday. They lose. They have their banquet on Monday night, or maybe it's Saturday's the game. Monday night, they have their banquet at the Harvard Club, and as is tradition, the whole team goes down to the combat zone for one last drink together as a team. And they go to the Naked Eye, uh, in part because it's really popular, in part because somebody from Harvard is related to some, the manager, and they get a back room. They go, they have a great time. They're so drunk. A couple of them are dancing on the stage with the stripper, but yeah, they're all just joking. And they leave at closing time, and they spill into the streets to go home because they all come on like some cabs, some cars, and a group that was going back in the Harvard equipment van. This group does not include Andy Popolo, and they're going home, and a couple of these women who were running the scam, and I could say that really honestly because I've seen their police records. I've seen that they've had previous arrests for pickpocketing and prostitution, but they're young. They're young, poor women. They're one of them's only 16. The other one's like 21. Unemployment in the black neighborhoods at this time is 20%. So there isn't a lot of opportunity in Boston. The unemployment's 15% in the white neighborhoods. So it's not a great time. So these two young women start talking to the football players. There's seven of them going by back to the van. And a couple of the boys are smart and uh, or the students are smart. And they say, you know, just don't talk to them. Don't talk to them. They're running this this scam because this, the scam itself was just been in the news the week before. I mean, it had been in the news for a couple of years, but just the week before it had been in all the papers. So one drunk football player mentions he has $50 in his wallet, which turned out to be a lie, but they go back to the Harvard van. One of the women gets in for about two minutes. He's trying to talk her to go back with him to Harvard. She pops out from all reports about two minutes and they realize the wallet's gone. Well, three or four of them get out of the van. They start, there's a couple things that happen, but they wind up in a chase down the street. And at this point, Andy Popolo is in the back of another car ready to go home. He's actually in the car ready to go home. Mm-hmm. And one of the other football players, Tom Lincoln, is about to get in that car. This other group of Harvard people say, they should get her. She's got the wallet because they're closer to her. 
So Tom Lincoln joined, Tom and a couple other joined the chase. They end up with another eight of them up in one area. Tom Lincoln also gets stabbed. And then when the Harvard football players see that there's a knife, they go, they run, there's a knife. And they all run down a block back to the, the Harvard, the van. They get chased. All of them get into a van except for one. It's the same guy who lost his wallet. He went chasing after his wallet and he gets pulled out by, now, now there's like four, three black guys and one guy in the cranberry jacket that nobody could decide what race he is. The testimony, some people say he's black, some people say he's white, some people say he's Hispanic, and who knows what he was. But he must have been a pretty big guy because he pulls this football player out of the van and starts pounding him against the side of the van. And, and, and Andy sees that. And he sees that he's alone at that moment. And he jumps in to help him. And that's when he ends up in a fight with another with other black guys. The guy with the knife isn't involved. He jumps over the other guy to stab Andy. Another football player tries to get Andy away. They're in retreat, but he's trying to drag him across the street. And the, other, the guy comes back to him and stabs him a second time, this time plunging the knife in and up to his heart. Oof. Yeah. So basically, so gets, a, yeah, a silly street fight that turns absolutely tragic. Yeah, yeah. They take him to the hospital, and at first it looks like he's going to make it, and he's in, a, he's in a coma for a, a month, and then he dies in December, and that's when all three men get charged. The three three black men get, get arrested at the scene, and first they're charged with uh, attempted murder, and then obviously that when he dies, the, the charges go up. So that's the murder that triggers all this. And and how did Boston respond to this? I mean, because there was so much controversy about the combat zone. Yeah. So what happened that, that week before the police chief had released a secret report he had done on his own police department, which said how corrupt cops were in the combat zone. And so that was like kind of the first nail in the coffin. Then this happened. And then also a state trooper got in a fight that week in the combat zone and wound up having a heart attack. So there were three events like within a week. The city goes crazy. The city, everybody's calling for it to close the combat zone. Ray Flynn, who will become mayor, starts a petition to close down the combat zone. The, the police blanket the area so that for the prostitutes who would number like 60 in a night, in a single Saturday night, now have nowhere to go. They, they kind of spill into the nicer neighborhoods and they get upset. And then the Suffolk County District Attorney had been doing an investigation at the same time. And then they really, and the licensing boards all try to get to the bottom of who owns these, these strip clubs, which were, they say, they think at least 50% mob owned. So for the next six to nine months, the combat zone is sort of a ghost town. There are cops everywhere. It's very uncomfortable. All the fun is gone. Right, right, <laughs> right. Yeah, no longer the Disneyland of... Uh... Yeah, all those same businesses are there. The combat zone will be hard to kill. And that's the moment that Boston, Boston Redevelopment Authority decides, this. we've got to shrink this. We're going to do right. everything we can to drive these people out of business. And it takes a long time, but that's when the campaign begins. Yeah, okay, gotcha. So bring us to the trial of... Leon Esterling, Richie Allen, and Eddie Soros, because these are the three defendants yeah. who yeah. are charged. This is charged as a conspiracy to commit murder. And we'll talk about that a little bit. But on the one hand, you've got Mundy, who is the DA, yeah. and, and he had a very close relationship with the 
Popolo family as well. Yes, yes. Right. Well, he, he develops it. He develops it. They yeah. live they live right down the street yeah. from each other yeah. in, in Jamaica Plain, correct? Yeah. yeah. And then you have one of the defense attorneys is Henry Owens, right? Who defends Richard Allen? But right. talk us through that first trial and what happens at that first trial. Okay, so I think that first trial is really about the combat zone. It's yeah, you kind of put yourself in. Tom Mundy is a very famous prosecutor in Boston. Uh, he will go on. He's had a fabulous career. He will go on to have an even more fabulous career. I mean, he's just he's just respected as just a brilliant prosecutor, even by the defense attorneys who hate him, say he's a, a brilliant prosecutor. But at that point, he's under pressure from the district. And, and the Suffolk County District Attorney, his boss, hates the combat zone. He's hated the combat zone long before this, and he wants it closed. So he's under pressure. I think he's under political pressure to charge. And he doesn't charge... Leon Easterling murdered Andy Popolo, in, I think, in pretty much cold blood. If it hadn't been for, the, you know, this, the second stabbing, and he had a knife, there's two instances, but the other two get charged using joint venture. And joint venture is a little like the felony murder rule, which mm-hmm. says it's being abandoned in Boston, but it says if you drove the stick-up car for the stick-up and the guy who goes in and shoots the bank clerk, you're just equally as guilty. On one hand, and this is this is what makes this kind of tricky. On one hand, he's saying that all three men were protectors of that prostitute working for a cut of the wallet. And and so he's he's saying that they're in this conspiracy together with that, right? Because they are trying to shut down those kind of things. And then he's also saying, but even without that, they're all equally culpable because once they see those other two see that he's got the knife. And he will use it on Tom Lincoln when they chase down with him to the van and provide assistance just by being there. They're providing assistance. But Edward Soros was also beating up Andy at the time. I mean, he was in a fight with him. I don't know if he was beating up. He was in a fist fight with him. So he's saying because they knew he had a knife and would use it, they're equally guilty. Joint venture is a legitimate legal theory. The problem is that they historically people tend to use it more against black defendants than white defendants. There are cases that will come up after this which show the judge just assumes the white kids involved were just young kids trying to, not knowing what was going on. Now, this is, these three defendants, they're not kids. They're not young kids. Leon Easterling is 41 years old. Richard Allen is 36, I think, and Edward Soros is 31. So they're not young kids, but they all get charged with murder one. And that's a controversial. It's also risky for the prosecutor because it's hard for a jury. Uh, it should be hard for a jury to think about putting people away for life with no chance of parole because it's asking, it's basically, it's asking the jury to say, did they have the same intent as the murderer? It's even relevant right now. There's right now, there's a globe spotlight series right. basically on exactly the same thing that I have a real problem with joint venture convictions. Because somebody can be, unless you prove that they're an intrinsic part of the actual murder, I think it is terribly unfair. In this Globe Spotlight series is interesting because it's like your getaway driver example. Even the person that's committed the murder does the time, gets out of jail, and the person who was driving the car is still in jail. Absolutely. It's so unfair. It is unfair. In any case, it's just an aside, but it's still a very relevant topic. Yeah. So the first trial, Tom Mundy has a lot of evidence. He's got something like 13 eyewitnesses, and not all of them are from Harvard. 
some of them are electric linemen on the street or an MBTA guy. So they have a lot of eyewitnesses against, particularly Leon Easterling. And they use joint venture. But Mundy's uh, probably critical error was it was very common at the time, not just in Boston, but all across the nation, to try to keep blacks off the jury if the defendants are black. Mm -hmm. So he winds up striking 12 of 13 potential black jurors. And there is one black man on the jury and they, they make him foreman and they think that, that that's fine, that they're, they're not going to have any trouble. But Henry Owen believed from the beginning that his client did not have a chance, in part because of all the heat on the combat zone, in part because the judge, Judge Roy, who was assigned to the case, was known as the hanging judge. And just to clarify, too, so Henry Owen represented Richard Allen. Yes, yes. And so what was kind of Richard Allen's role in this, as it were, if any? So there is testimony that they're chasing two prostitutes, and, and one goes in one direction, one goes in the other. They first chase the one who they think has the wallet. And when they try to go after her down an alley, Richard Allen, who is working as a bouncer, steps in front of them and says, what are you doing? And he stops them. And there's a little altercation there. But most of the time he's saying, you came to the zone, you got burned, just you know, take your lumps and go home. Right. So they're about to go home, and they are about to go home. They're in the van when they spot the other, almost, almost out of the zone, when they spot the other prostitute down the street, and they jump out of the van and chase her again. And this time it leads to the fight. So after that, Richard Allen, as the fight begins... He leaves his post at the Carnival Lounge and goes up to the goes up to this fight. He doesn't touch anybody. There's no credible testimony that he threw a single punch. But when the fight goes back to the Harvard van, he's there. Now he's a very big guy and he works as a bouncer. And so there is Mundy believes that he is working with the prostitute. So that's why he gets drawn in. He has police reports. He has, he has testimony. He, he doesn't, he can't use it at trial, but he does have reports from prostitutes that that's what Richard Allen does. So that's why he goes after Richard Allen. And that's kind of his big mistake because Richard Allen really didn't touch anybody. So he gets charged. Now, Edward Soros kind of started the fight and he also tries to charge Edward Soros is also a protector for the prostitute. I don't think he was. And then Leon Easterling and Richard Allen are kind of half brothers so they may have been working together. And Leon Easterling has a rap sheet for being a pimp. So that's the lowdown on the defendants. So can you tell us what happens at the trial? Yeah, so at the trial, they takes them like a week to seat the jury. It's really hard to seat the jury because there's been so much publicity about this. And, and so in, in the transcript, it's sort of interesting. They ask the judge to seat a jury, ask two things. They ask... Uh, have you been paying any attention to this publicity? Can you can you not be influenced by it? And a lot of people are like, oh, I have to be influenced by it. I mean, I've just been heard it like nonstop. And then the other thing is, how fair can you be racially? Can you be fair to a black defendant? And some people say, no, actually, I really can't. Wow. <laughs> I really say, I, they're like not even really embarrassed about being racist, the tenor of the times. But anyway, so they do seat a jury and seating the jury takes almost as long as the trial after seven or eight days of testimony, the jury takes basically an afternoon to debate it. And then at the, at one afternoon and then 20 minutes the next morning. And they have a, a conviction of all three of them for wow. first degree murder. 
Wow. Which means, which means life imprisonment in, at that time it, 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 with no chance of parole. And the part I found so interesting in your book about the trial, too, was that you have Monday, you have Judge Roy, that the hanging judge, yeah. and then you have Henry Owens, yeah. who was a, a Black attorney. He represented Richard Allen, and he is fighting against uh, the, the jury selection, and he's essentially setting this case up for yeah. appeal. You know, he says from the beginning, he knows he can't win. You know, he knows he can't win any other way. It's not going to be a fair trial. And it's been driving him crazy for years that the district attorney does this all the time, just strikes all the black, potential black jurors. And that's that's something that go- goes on across the nation and will continue to go on across the nation after Boston stops. Boston really becomes a, a reformer, one of the earliest reformers on criminal justice. And it's still, you can still look up Commonwealth versus Soros, right? right? This is the, the, and so can you explain to us the result of what what happened? So what happens is after they're convicted, Henry Owens, well, all the defense attorneys appeal and it goes to the Supreme Judicial Court and it takes about, so this is, the trial is in 45, about 45 years ago today. It's like March, 1977. And then they issue a decision in, I think it's about March, 1979. And what Henry Owen says is that he knew the time was ripe to do it because the the makeup of the appeals court had changed, had become a little bit more liberal. And shortly before they issued this decision, California has a similar decision where they uh, say you can't strike jurors based on race. So the Soros decision, because when they're striking, in the striking jury business, Henry Owens and the defense, they strike 17 potential jurors who have Italian last names. This is the way business is done. I mean, the lawyers are not really looking for a fair juror. They're looking for a juror who's going to see it their way. They suspect that someone might be biased because the victim is Italian and they're Italian. They're just going to strike them. And that's why it takes so long to, to, to the jury. So in the Soros decision, they say you cannot use any kind of identifying group to scrap jurors. It's race, religion, sex, gender, sexual orientation. You can't be striking women off the jury because you think they're going to be too sympathetic. That now this is the decision that really changes the way juries are chosen. And it'll take like something like eight years before it gets to the federal Supreme Court. And using this decision, they will rule in the Batson decision that you can't do it federally. But the Soros decision is not perfect, but it works better because, in part because of follow-up cases which have refined it. And bring us to the family at this point, Andy's family. They are, of course, happy with this decision yeah. of all three defendants getting convicted of first-degree murder. I thought it was very interesting in the book that even though... Andy's father was not mob-related. He was a very legitimate businessman, but that he had people approaching him saying, look, if you you want us to take these guys out, we'll take them out for you. But they must have been, in some ways, insofar as someone can be happy with the decision, they must have been happy with this conviction of first-degree murder in the the first trial. Yeah, I mean, this is a devastating loss, obviously. This, This is absolutely a crushing, devastating loss. And the prosecutor tells them justice is through these three men all have to go down for a murder one. That's justice. So I, I think that in most cases, victims, survivors, what they want is the maximum penalty. Now, if the maximum penalty is capital punishment, they'll want capital punishment. 
in Massachusetts had no capital punishment. You know, Danny said, I, I didn't want him. You know, I wouldn't want capital punishment. I want him to spend his life in prison. What they want is the maximum sentence because that says this murder was wrong. You right. Know, this murder was not justified. This is unjust. We have to, we see this as, as egregious as you, as you do. We're going to punish them to the maximum. So I believe that if Monday had said just Leon Easterling has to go for murder one from the beginning, I think they would have been happy with that. But I'm guessing I, they never said that. That's my, that's my theory. But they were told that all three of them had to get the maximum sentence. So when it gets overturned, it's like saying, no, well, maybe, and, and, and you have to remember, this is coupled with people saying to them all the time, oh, it's so sad Andy got murdered. What was he doing in the combat zone anyway? Right. Oh, yeah. It's because whenever there's a murder, people want to think that there's no way it could happen to them, and that somehow there were some circumstances that's going to affect, that affected them that would never affect anybody. They Absolutely. Right. And if they can isolate that and separate themselves from it, right, they feel safer. Right. So there's this constant refrain of, what was he doing in the combat zone anyway? Like, s- somehow he deserved it. And so when they overturn the verdict, it's that kind of an echo of that. Well, yeah, well, maybe he kind of, you know, I mean, it's, that's what it feels like to the victim's family. So they wait for two years because Mundy doesn't just sit down and die. He writes an you know, appeal to, to argue against this, but he loses. Henry Owens and the defense wins. And, and I have to say that at Supreme Judicial Court says, look, in, in its decision, it says, look, there is plenty of evidence that these guys were in joint venture and all three of them are equally guilty. There's plenty of evidence for that, but the jury selection was was unfair. To them, it's a technicality. It feels like a technicality that, he's, that, that murders are left off on a technicality. So because there's evidence that they were in it together. So, or from their perspective. So they go to a second trial. And between these two trials, Boston, a lot goes on in Boston. A lot that, that I didn't know about. They feel that, you know, Andy Popolo didn't get justice, but there's a lot of black Vic because of this, because of the racial tenor, because of it's almost always an all white jury. A lot of black victims don't get justice. And that comes to the forefront during these two years while they're waiting for the next trial. There are several cases where Brian Nelson in in Medford is like an 18 year old young black man with his life ahead of him. And he gets murdered by a bunch of white guys in a van, you know, mm. after a fight. They don't charge all nine kids in the van using joint venture. It's and outrageous. They, right. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't even charge the, the white kid who, who murdered him. They charge him with manslaughter, saying, well, it's a fight. It's a spontaneous brawl, which you could make the argument for the same thing in the combat zone, but they charged him with murder. The jury acquits him anyway. So there are a couple of instances, there are several instances like this, which expose the unfairness in the criminal justice system and the racism. Do you think the tipping point for that was the 15-year-old football yeah. player yeah. Getting, so, getting shot in South Boston? Yeah. So during this period, this is, remember, uh, I don't know, where Carson Beach, there's a lot of fights in Carson Beach and Southie where the you know, the whites are beating up any blacks who try to use the beach. It's it's a period of intense racial violence and it's it's gone out of the schools now now it's into the neighborhoods like blacks are moving into dorchester and at east boston and there's houses are getting molotov cocktails thrown at them 
statistically, there's a lot of white violence against blacks. It's more, it's like something like 60%. Uh, it's white against blacks. But the tenor of the city is starting to change. The, the city's getting sick of Louise Day Hicks and these South School Committee politicians who have been leading the protest. They vote them out of office. And they vote John Bryant, who's like one of the earliest black school committee members in. The city is sick of the violence. They want peace. So there's a progression of white awareness of their role. And then right before the second trial, 15-year-old Daryl Williams, a young black kid who wants to be a football player and is, is very talented, gets shot on the high school football field in Charlestown. Oh, wow. Three white kids who are on a roof with a 22. Now it's a 22, which is a small bullet. It goes in the back of his neck. They think he's going to die. And it, he goes into a coma just like Andy Popolo did. So when this trial is going on, it, it looks like he's, it's funny. It's, it's weird. It echo very, in some ways it echoes the Andrew Popolo mm. thing. And it's just as big a news event. And he eventually wakes from that and he's paralyzed for life. And he goes on to become a, a very important speaker. But wow, interesting. Yeah. But this happens like only days before they pick the new jury. So I, I think the second trial is very much influenced by that. Like it's, it's the point when where white violence against black has finally gone too far. I thought it was interesting that even the people in Charlestown were so sick. They, they actually helped to find these guys. Yes. They, even they were outraged by right. like enough is enough right. kind yeah. of thing. So this is the setup for the second trial. Yeah, that's the setup for the second trial. Uh, the second trial, the defense is much stronger. So Henry Owens is still there, but the Leon Easterling and Edu Soros get much, much, much better attorneys. The first time the defense has three months to prepare for this case between he died in December 1976. They're to trial in March 1977. That's unheard of today. So it's, it's three months. So they get like, you know, almost a year to prepare. There are also some pretty famous big names. Norman Zalkind, who's, who's, who's sort of a famous Boston attorney, and Andrew Good. And they really go to town. And, and Henry Owens is back again. So they form a, an excellent, a, a much better team. So they've got a better defense. Also, they're, you know, the defense usually has more of an advantage the second time around because they can pick apart everything that happened during the first trial and find you know, little inconsistencies. But they, they, they know the weak sp spots yeah. of the prosecution's case, basically. Right, right. Yeah. So that said, it was a very close trial. It's, you know, they said they, the people there thought there's moments when they think Monday's going to do it again, that he's, he's got a lot of evidence. He's got a very strong case. It's also the first time the new rules for jury selection go into effect. So this is the first trial that will have to choose a murder trial that have to choose juries using the new rules. So the final jury there has, I think, three blacks on the jury and one alternate. I think maybe only two sat in the jury and the third was an alternate, but the jury has a different take on it. Also, you know, at this point, the combat zone has been all the criminal problems that were in the combat zone have been cleaned up. 
the cops have done a pretty good job of of cleaning up the area. So combat zone crime isn't in the news. These concept of harbor horrors are kind of an old concept now. So Mundy tries to bring it back, and, and he does a pretty good job. But and the trial is very close, but it has a way different outcome. And and what year is the second trial again? Is this, this is in the fall of 1979. 79. Okay, gotcha. And what is the outcome, Dan? So this time the jury acquits. Richard Allen and Edusaurus completely, and they convict Leon Easterling only of manslaughter. Wow. So that, yeah. that's a big change. And he gets yeah. 20 years. Is that correct? The judge gives him the maximum that you possibly can get, but he's already, remember, he, they've been waiting trial, so he's already been, he's already served three years. You can tell by what the judge thinks when they ask him for leniency, when Norman Zalkine says he deserves leniency, the judge says something like, you know, I have the advantage of having sat through the trial and really listened. Uh-huh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> and then he gives them the maximum, which is 20 years. But the way sentencing works, like if you're sentenced to 22 years, it means 15 years. And then Leanna Easterling's already served three years by waiting between the two trials. You know, he's been in prison this whole time. So he will wind up getting out, I think, in like eight years. Wow. And so... Another interesting part of your book is that you've talked to Danny Pablo, yeah. who is, is Andy's younger brother. Danny really looked up to Andy. This was devastating for the whole family, but yeah. particularly for Danny. And you talk about his sort of, he struggles with sort of revenge fantasies. Can you yeah. talk a little bit sort of about the, the family's reaction to the second trial and, and what Danny goes through particularly? So prior to the second trial, this is when, the father is is approached and says, while they're still in jail, you say the word and we'll have them we'll have them whacked in prison. The father says, No, no, that's I'm putting my faith in the criminal justice system. I'm, I'm not I'm not doing something like that. And there are a lot of stories at that time about assassination squads in Walpole <laughs> State. So you know, I believe you have to remember this is a time too, the Godfather movies were out. This is when the Godfather's movies are out, and everybody believes in this noble vendetta that Danny really thinks that the, the mob wants to, and, and they want to think that the mob wants to take them out because he's the pride of the North End. And when his father says no, Danny, you know, Danny's 19 when this happens. Wow. He's, yeah, so he's, and his brother always protected him, always defended him. So he starts to feel it's his obligation to get revenge. You know, I learned through my research, this is really a common reaction yeah, to victim survivors, which and it explains that's the reason there's all the gang warf- warfare. Sure. Because these kids witness someone close to them being murdered. They are traumatized and they can't get their revenge fantasies out of their head. That's a really common reaction. Sure. The difference about, you know, with Danny is that Danny's, it's a very religious family. And so he will... On one hand, go stalk, you know, Richard Allen in the combat zone, and he'll leave there and go to church and get on his knees and pray for forgiveness. You know, so he's 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 conflicted, but he really does have this really strong driving desire for revenge that obviously gets magnified by the second jury's decision. Gotcha. And when we first spoke, you you brought up the fact that the Godfather movies were out. It was the the first God, the Godfather was yeah. 1972. It's right in this this time of vendetta. But Danny doesn't. He's he's tempted. He almost comes close in the oh, book. He yeah. comes very close to. Yeah. He's got a friend there. They've got I think Richard Allen's Allen in their sights, and it's yeah. like 
I, I'm ready to go. And, yeah. and how does he sort of find forgiveness or does he find forgiveness? No, he never finds forgiveness. Yeah. He never finds forgiveness. I think of it now when I finished the book, I didn't think of this at the time when I was writing it, but Danny is kind of a metaphor for the city. He struggles with this hatred for these three black men, uh, but for a very personal reason. And he, he kind of comes to terms with it and he begins to heal, but not completely. Sure. You know, not yeah. completely. And, you know, it's a lot to ask someone. I don't know if I could forgive somebody if I, if they murdered my brother. Sure. I, I, I don't know if I could. I don't think a lot of people could. He decides that's not, you know, the way to honor his brother. Wow. It just is profoundly interesting, sad, complicated, and almost, you know, as a Bostonian, I it was a very painful time for this. But it's painful to think about it. I mean, this is our... Our city, and you're right, this area, this combat zone area now is, you know, there's a Starbucks there, a Ritz Carlton, <laughs> right, right. A, a fancy high-rise high rise apartment. Absolutely, Bono, but Billy, I, I think it's important for us to remember this kind of lost history of Boston because it is kind of ugly, and it's something I want my daughter to know about and to know this was in my lifetime. That's yeah. right. When I couldn't go into the North End or into Southie, uh, you know, with with friends of mine of different skin colors. So I think it's very important to to look at this stuff, see how far we've come. Yeah. And uh, you know, really realize this wasn't that long ago, but it is very interesting and we've had other people from uh, you know, some friends from New York say they never even knew about this. Kind of like a sec- a Boston secret. So we're we're going to let the secret out and uh, <laughs> hopefully lots of people are going to get your book and yeah. explore it more. Right. That would be awesome. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Well, Jan, best of luck. This was a wonderful This was book. a blast. Thank you yes. so much, Jan. Uh, thank you. And, and good luck to you guys. Thanks. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. 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 Murder, murder.